we will, I will be reading out of Exodus chapter 9, verses 8 through 12. Prepare your hearts, soften them before God, so that you might hear what Pharaoh could not. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came, up, uh, came upon the magicians and upon, upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord has spoken to Moses. May God bless the reading of his word. Today, you may be seated. Before we get started in the sermon, let's go ahead and uh, go to the Lord and ask him to do what only he can do. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you realizing that if not for you, our hearts would still be hardened and would be impenitent, not desiring you, but rather running away from you, and even so much as shaking their fists at you, wanting to be God over our own lives. We thank you that you have graciously softened our hearts, given us hearts of flesh, and now we ask, Father, that you take these hearts of flesh and mold them to the truth that you have shared in Scripture. Allow us to, to hear carefully and apply in our lives in such a way that we bring glory to you and that we bring transformation by way of your spirit. It almost sounds weird to say we bring. Let me reword that. How about you bring transformation of our spirit that we might be more and more made into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning's title for our uh, passage or our sermon is Who Can Stand in Opposition to His Creator? So I, I want to ask a question to see if you guys have been in the same place I have been, and that is, over the last two years, have you f found yourself at any time unsettled over the many powerful and almost unstoppable voices within society that rage against God and the truth of God, his law. Personally, I get to places where I, I just can't watch any more news. I just can't listen to another podcast. I just can't engage another person, it seems like, who holds to these philosophies and holds to them with such passion. It just I stand in awe sometimes that how could this be? How could this possibly be? And you have to approach that with humility, realizing that we were all once a part of the darkness. But let me, as you're pondering, Nick, what specifically are you getting at? Or what's the elephant in the room that you, that's here and you won't say? Well, let me give you an idea. There's a few of them that are front and center of our, of our society that particularly in the last two years, it's the perfect storm that these issues have been expedited. They have been so pressed into the DNA of our society that it's, it's very concerning. One of them is abortion. God in his word said it is murder when you kill a baby, when you kill any human being except for in self-defense. 
or if you are in a, in a, uh, an active war and you're defending yourself from that perspective. Everything else is murder. So the society has now said that not only have we been dealing with this for, since 1972 or 73 with allowing, where man comes up with a law and says, well, God may say it's murder, but we say it's acceptable, it's lawful to do this. We now have in Denver, the, the law says that, uh, referring to the child as a fetus, that the, the child or fetus has absolutely no right to life until the day it is born. And we just, I'm just standing there thinking, how do you process that as a living human being? What if the same was done to you? Or how about the issue of gender identity? God says that he made man male and female. And the world screams and says, no, 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 no. There's this fluidity. You can be whatever you want, and there's an all sorts of conflation of what that even is as far as male and fe female. And God's law says, no, that's not the case. The third topic I'll take on is defunding the police. And you might say, oh, you're just taking that on because you did your time as a police officer here in the city of Phoenix. No. It, well, I'll say it this way. There is a, an appeal to law that I can appreciate, having been a law enforcement uh, uh, officer. But we as Christians have to realize something, that when God gave us the law, built into the law, the idea of the law is the enforcement of the law. When you stop enforcing the law, because defund the police, whether you, you believe that it, is, uh, it started off well-intended to be a, a form of, of uh, reform, um, which there's needed reform in, in the uh, uh, police world on how people are treated. There's no question about that. But what started out as reform now is defund the police, get rid of the police. And you have where you have no law or the enforcement of it, you will have chaos, you will have violence, you will have disorder, not order. And thus we are seeing that lived out in our societies as you read the stats of the percentages. And the percentages aren't going up by single digits. They're not going up by double digits. I saw one last week that the homicides in Chicago were up three digits, over a 127% increase. Where you have no law enforced, you will have violence murder, chaos. You cannot stand in opposition of God and not see the, 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 the consequence of chaos. Well, as it relates to these voices that seem like they've almost been unstoppable these last two years, today we're going to watch God incapacitate the voices of these false teachers the priests that stood before Moses, bringing their religion, their worldview, their truth, and saying, it's our truth against your truth. And you will see God incapacitate them. He silences the voices of those that oppose him. In fact, taking your bulletin to the back page, let's take a look at the sermon notes and make sure we get a an understanding of what we are to take away from the sermon today. And the takeaway is this. Be encouraged. False gods, false religions, and false teachers are not able to stand in opposition to the one true God, the creator over all that he created.
And that's the truth. And when we can hold on to that, we can hold that dear and be encouraged. The filling up of courage to go out in our communities and stand for the truth despite the world saying, no, we want to rage against God's truth. Well, today we're going to be looking at, in fact, you just heard PJ read from our passage today in Exodus 9, 8 through 12, and it's plague number six, whereby Yahweh strikes the Egyptians with boils. And it's not just the the Egyptians, but it's also their livestock. And we know that with every plague, two things are occurring simultaneously. God is, is conducting a polemic. He is bringing an attack on the, the false religion, the false gods of that religion. Now, when I say false gods, we know that those are fallen spiritual beings that want to be worshipped. They have fallen away from worshipping God, and now they want humans to worship them as God. So when I say false gods, don't be thinking uh, fake gods, meaning that they're, they're, they're not an entity. They're not really gods. They are spiritual beings who are lesser than God because they're created and greater than us because they're of the spiritual realm and have greater capabilities. So we're going to see this, this attack on these this false gods and therefore their system of religion that has been created to worship them. The priests that maintain this system and even the people and the livestock, God is going to deal with all of them through this plague of the boils. So let me read to you, again, a compilation of, of, of the ancient Near East studies. This isn't just one person. This is a collection of, of a number of people that, that uh, are experts in this field of Egyptian religion and what is going on. So let me tell you about this particular false god's name is Sekhmet. So let, let's listen about Sekhmet. Sekhmet, whose name means, and this is common in ancient Near East, you can take a, a, a collection of words and they can have two meanings depending on the context. Listen to this name and what this meaning is. It means either she who is powerful or the one who loves ma'at. And remember, ma'at is the Egyptian word. It's a, it's a loner word from Egypt that comes out, uh, and we see that used here. Um, it means harmony, but it means harmony by way of what the false god calls harmony. It's a capri- capricious harmony. It's a harmony based on what the, whatever the false god wants at that time. It's not a just harmony like our God Yahweh has. He works off of complete justice. So harmony is always perfect. There is no oppression of anyone else. It's not the way that harmony works in the, the false God system. So it means either she who is powerful or the one who loves Ma'at uh, was the goddess of the, of the hot desert sun. Now listen to uh, so some of these other areas that she was goddess over, and you'll start to see why Yahweh, our God, the living God, the self-existent God, outside of, of cre- creation and the one and only who created creation, she, uh, she was also the goddess over plagues. Oh, really? Let's go to town. Let's go to bat here and see how you do. She's the goddess over plagues, over chaos, over wars, and healing. She can bring the plague, and she can heal you from the plague. Sure she can. Let's continue on. She was created from the fire of the sun of the, of God, uh, the, of the sun god Ra's eye. So creepy, weird stuff. She's, she's made from the, 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 the eye, the sun protruding from the, the eye of the, uh, the sun god Ra. Remember, Pharaoh is the incarnate version of his father Ra. 
So we have the connection back to Ra. You can't keep seeing Yahweh doing things as far as these plagues to go right after this one called Ra, this supreme being within the system, and any manifestations of lower gods. So we continue on. Ra created her as a weapon to destroy humans for their disobedience to him and for not having excuse me, for not living in accordance with the principles of Ma'at. Sometimes she is seen as the daughter of Geb, we've seen that uh, particular false god attacked, and Nut, N-U-T, the sky god, we've seen her attacked as well. Sekhmet was depicted with the body of a woman and a lion's head wearing a sun disc. She was seen as the protector of the pharaohs and led them in warfare. Interesting, she goes ahead of them in warfare. Yahweh said in the burning bush to Moses, I will go ahead and lead you out. So we have this idea of, I mean, he's taking it right at her. You have this goddess that leads you in in warfare and plagues and whatever. I am the God, the one true God that leads me, my people, out of this. I am the God who leads us through the warfare. In fact, you're going to see that in the promised land. God says, I go before you. And I clear the people away, so to speak. I'm using paraphrasing there. Let's continue on. Uh, uh, When she was in, uh, excuse me, she was seen as the protector of the pharaohs and led them in warfare. When she was in a calmer state, she has her bad days, uh, she would take the form of a household cat goddess named Bastet. Sekhmed was a terrifying goddess. However, for her friends, she would avert plague and cure diseases. She was the patron of physicians and healers. The ancient Egyptians believed that Sekhmet had a cure for every problem. In order to stay on her good side, the Egyptians offered her food and drink, played music for her, and burned incense. We're seeing a lot of the same godlike features that the Greeks come up with in their pantheon of gods. You have to entertain them or they get mad. You have to meet their needs. Our God doesn't have any needs. Their gods have needs that must be met. Uh, they would whisper their prayers into the ears of, this is kind of gross, of cat mummies and offer them to Sekhmet. They believed that this was a direct connection to the deities and their prayers would be answered. A special priesthood was devoted to her called the Sanu. And then this is going to be key for what, uh, what God does in this plague. What he has Moses and Aaron do. Is, this, is, this is going to tie it in. So listen carefully to this. This is just one sentence. Amulets, amulets are the jewelry worn. Uh, they are made in a kelm, the jewelry worn, uh, to, in order to protect you from something. Amulets and other objects were employed by the Egyptians to ward off evil in their lives. And particularly, um, these amulets uh, pictured her, this uh, woman who has a lion head. And they would, she's the one that protects them from, from harm. So with the sixth plague of boils, Yahweh attacked the Egyptian power structure in the area of worship and work. In other words, on the one hand, Yahweh incapacitated the, the priest's ability to intercede on, the, on behalf of the people to their gods. They can't intercede if they're incapacitated, if they can't stand. And we saw that in the text today. We'll see it again. On the other hand, the boils would have hindered and most likely incapacitated the Egyptian people and their tools of labor, which are the beasts. The beasts and and the uh, humans are both born. They're both created, better stated, on uh, the sixth day. The beasts were created to help man complete his job. Uh, we'll continue on. The nation would have what the nation, speaking of uh, Egypt, would have been powerless, vulnerable, and in desperate need 
of healing. So now let's take a, 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 a look at this from the decreation. We see the polemic. We see the attack of God, what he is using to go right at this false god. Now let's talk about decreation. If you haven't heard that term yet before, we're using that to understand that when God uh, punishes, when God brings affliction on those that, that are, uh, are coming at him and, and trying to oppose him, God takes creation and he moves it backwards. That's why we use the term uh, decreation. You could say he reverses creation. So let's listen how he's uh, using this form of punishment, this decreation, uh, uh, to punish the, the uh, Egyptians in this particular plague. On the sixth day of creation, man and beast were created to fill the realm of the land. On the sixth day, Yahweh used dust to create man's physical body to work the garden with vigor. The beast would be the tools used by mankind to extend the garden outward to the ends of the earth. That was their role. That was supposed to happen by, by way of Adam and Eve and all of their children that would have followed in them, moving that garden outward to the four corners of the earth. In this act of decreation, Yahweh used dust not to bring forth life like he did for, for men and women, uh, Adam and Eve. Uh, Eve actually taken from the, the, the midsection of uh, of Adam, but to bring forth a visual death-like decay and incapacitation of the Egyptians' bodies along with their tools of labor, the beasts of the land. So instead of the dust bringing about life, the dust gets spread over the land, and everybody that it settles on looks like they're the walking dead, or maybe not walking, just lying because it's too painful. They have boils covering their body. Their body looks to be in painful decay. So we see not the beauty of creation moving forward with life. We see the punishment of those trying to uh, oppress uh, God's people and oppose God. He gives on them the punishment of decreation. So let's take a look at this. Now Now that we have some background on how the Israelites would be able to view this and what's going on in their culture because they live in the midst of the ancient Near Eastern, in particular, the Egyptian culture. Um, Now let's see this played out. So the first bullet point on on your uh, handout is no dust of mankind can stop the affliction by its creator. You'll notice I put in parentheses, no dust of mankind. I'm playing a little with this, and I want you to see that God's going to use this this idea of personification. That is, giving something that doesn't have being, being, for the purpose of, of making an emphasis to it. So, dust of mankind, we are all, you look at your hand, you look at any part of your body, we all are organic. We all come from the dust. That's how God has made us. So, in some sense, we are, I'm, I'm trying to give you a picture of, there's the dust of mankind, that which is right here in my hand. And then there's me, that, who, that is, I know who I am, I can think, I can process, I have a personality. But watch how these two act differently. There's a little play going on here. So let's continue on with this. No dust of mankind can stop the affliction by its creator. So in Exodus 9, 8 through 10, let's take a look at this. And Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln. Now what's interesting, back in the Tower of Babel, the bricks that the Babylonians were using to make the tower were put in a, a uh, were burned. I'll just say it that way. It's all we're told. Well, in order to burn them, they would have put them uh, in a kiln to strengthen them so they could act like stone and so they would be sturdy. 
But um, what happens at this time in the era, and this is where uh, this era of time is the Egyptians aren't using kilns at this time. They are later on to make their bricks. At this point, they are mud bricks. We know that. They are bricks that are made with mud. They need hay or stubble to be put in it. And that hay or stubble gives them the ability to be strong and yet a little bit flexible so they can, they can go with the, 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 they can act as one unit in one strong structure, whatever they're making. But they don't have kilns in Egypt at this time to make brick. They have kilns to make jewelry or pottery, in particular, amulets. They fire up the kiln, put in the metals, put them in the molds, and make sure that their amulets that protect them from evil is what is coming out of those kilns. That's going to play a major role in why Yahweh is doing what he's having Aaron and Moses do. Let's continue on. Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, uh, and let Moses throw. The, the word there, it might be better understood as scatter. Both the ancient, in the ancient Near East and many of the cultures, as well as even in Hebrew, that word throw, or actually I like the word scatter, gives the same uh, understanding. Um, you'll see it in our Bibles when it talks about that the, the priests were called to throw the blood against the altar or to send out and scatter the, the water made holy as a representation of the people were now made holy. That was the word that's being used here. So when you see this word, it has a ritual understanding, a religious ritual understanding. And they would see that and be drawn into that. And, and excuse me, and let Moses throw them in the air, speaking of the, the uh, soot, uh, in the sight of Pharaoh. So Pharaoh knows what's going to happen is because of what I said should take place. This is, you can't confuse this, Pharaoh. Do it. Make sure that Pharaoh sees. This is me making sure that my, my priests, my representatives do as I tell them to do, and then it goes out. My affliction goes out. It's immediate. There's no question on who is the author behind this. Verse 9, and it shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils. I need to get a little gross here so you can appreciate when I say incapacitated. Boils talk about a painful sore with a hard core that is filled with pus. Sound like something you want to walk on? Uh-uh. I mean, I get a, a little sticker in the bottom of my foot, and I'm, I'm sitting down trying to pick it out before I can walk on it. I don't like sharp rocks. You know, my kids can go on the little rock... Uh, uh, now, landscape, I, man, that's hard on me. I can't imagine boils, too much pressure, and they're popping, and you've got the infection. And, ah, yuck. Okay, now that you've got the gross side of it out there, you can, under, you can appreciate that there is an incapacitating uh, understanding of this. It says that, and become boils breaking out. Well, the word breaking out is actually spreading. So when these ashes come on the bodies of, of the Egyptians, they, they immediately start to see the boils, but the boils spread into other sores, and it, uh, breaking out in sores, which, by the way, not only are they incapacitated, it's a no-no. You can't worship if you have boils, if you have sin break, skin breaks on your body. So they can't worship their false gods. See how God is, is taking them away from their false gods? Let's continue on. Um, on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. Verse 10, so they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air. Doesn't it actually say air? Air is an okay translation. We understand what's going on as far as the movement. What's neat is, if you use the Hebrew, it means to throw it heavenward, God's realm. 
Let's see what God does with this dust as this dust is thrown heavenward. So it continues on. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air or threw it heavenward, and it became boils breaking out on the sores on man and beast. Okay, so what is Yahweh doing here? He's instructing Moses and Aaron to mock the, the false religion, to mock that which they do, their priests do. So what is it that their priests normally do? So their priests would offer their sacrifice on an altar, not in a kiln, on an altar. And after the sacrifice was completely burned to appease the God, remember, you've got to do certain things to make the God happy, or you, you could get uh, uh, you know, a lightning bolt chucked at you or whatever it might be. That's all tongue-in-cheek. It doesn't actually work that way. Um, the, then they would take the ashes, the, uh, the magicians, which are uh, the Egyptian priests. Those names are synonymous with one another. They take handfuls of the ashes, and they throw them up in the air. And if you were a person, an Egyptian, you wanted it to land on you. Because if the ashes land on you, you received blessing. It was a demonstration of blessing. So they would throw up the, the air, the, it would, the, the dust would go out in the, uh, in the air, and you hope that it is. And it was a fa- physical manifestation of, I'm going to be blessed. I received the ashes on me. Now do you have some understanding of what God is doing here? They don't. He says to Moses and Aaron, don't go get those ashes. Go to the kiln where they burn and make and create their amulets. Take handfuls of soot, handfuls of that which represents the amulets, that which is able to protect them from harm. I'm going to bring them harm. Let's see if it can protect them from harm. And throw it or scatter it into the air and let it land on them. And when it lands on them, they will not like what happens to them. It will not bring blessing. It will bring boils. And these are the painful, incapacitating boils. And they will ache. And in fact, later on in the, in the Bible, it talks about they will itch. And looking back on this, they said that the itching was profuse on them. Almost, the itching itself was almost incapacitating. I remember as a kid uh, having a uh, Mumps, I think is what it was. If you itch them, they leave dots on your face. Chickenpox, there you go. Sorry, wrong one. It's funny, I still to this day, when I see somebody that on their face, they'll have a little bit of an indentation. I go, oh, they shared chickenpox one day. They had that when they were a kid because that's what happens. So you get those and you scratch them. If you scratch them, you make the mistake of scratching them, they're leaving a mark, a permanent mark. And that's why mom and dad would always say, don't scratch them. But you couldn't ha- help it. You were dying. You needed some relief. They were all over your body. And I thought, oh, this is like what's going on here. They, they, their, their mind is, is taken over to the pain and the discomfort, and I just got to make this go away. It's the itch I cannot get the, any, any comfort from. That's what's going on. That's what we see. The Egyptians, with all of their... Boils would look like human beings walking with decaying corpse. It's an ugly picture. It's a picture of decreation. It's a picture. Let me give you one more mind picture to, to work with. It's a picture of the dust of the grave rising up to cover and hasten the return of evil mankind 
back to dust. That's what happens to the body as it decays. That's what it looks like in the grave. It, that's the picture. You choose to oppose me, and this is what is happening to you. I'm going to make sure it is manifested, and there's nothing that your false gods can do. Do not trust in them. They are false. Yahweh is visually emphasizing the curse mankind willingly chose in the garden. You know, it's interesting. I'm a student as much as I am a teacher up here. I am fascinated every week when I get in and I dig in. And I, I go to the different sources and I start to read and, and see who's got the, the most intelligible. I mean, there were some commentators that said that, oh, these were the bricks. These were bricks that it's talking about. The ashes are from the bricks. And I'm reading and I'm reading the archaeology and I'm going, uh-uh, there's no bricks there yet. can't be from bricks. The only kilns were, were dealing with jewelry and uh, the amulets. So this is, can't be. So anyways, I, I feel like I'm on a treasure hunt when I'm going through this. And so as I'm teaching you about decreation, I'm making, I'm having, God is, re, is sharing with me aha moments of my own. And one of the aha moments was, was if you think of, of the curse that God gave us at the beginning when Adam and Eve took from the fruit of the tree of good and evil, and they said, I'm going to be like God, and I'll decide that. When God said, when you, the day you take from that, you will... You will die. Well, they died spiritually, and then their bodies would die eventually, physically. They would die. Isn't that interesting? They were the first to receive decreation. The body was never intended to die. There was the tree of life in the garden. They were to be obedient and continue in life. But the curse brought about death upon them. It's decreation. And I start thinking, how many forms of the consequence of my sin has been God's act of decreation and I haven't appreciated? I want order. I want God's perfect, just righteousness in my life. This decreation is ugly, painful, and it injures the people I love. It doesn't just injure me. And so we have an appreciation of what this decreation is. Listen to this if, you, if you're not tracking with me, decreation. This is God giving forth the, uh, uh, the, the curse and his, his expounding on it. He says this in Genesis 3.19. By the sweat of your face, I like the King James Version, by the sweat of your brow. It just sounds more poetic to me. Uh, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and dust you shall return as a form of the punishment, the curse. We were not intended to go back, but yet we are. So we understand that though Pharaoh and his priests promote this false God status of Pharaoh, this false God religion, they cannot stand and oppose God. They just are incapable. And yet, we also see that though they try and oppose, the dust of mankind, this is where I'm using personification, our cellular makeup, their cellular makeup, obeyed Yahweh. As soon as the ashes touched them, their bodies didn't go, well, I don't know if I want to keep fighting or if I'm going to just give in. No, their bodies immediately obey. The ashes bring affliction. The affliction is seen in their bodies. It's so interesting. 
Let me, let me give you another picture, a New Testament picture of something that is personified as doing that which is right that we fail to do in our willingness to obey God. Listen to this from, from Luke 19, 37 to 40. This is the, the last days of Jesus' triumphal, triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He's going to be crucified within days. And this is where we see him coming in and the people are magnifying him as they should. And listen to this. As he, Jesus, was drawing near, already on the way down, excuse me, already on the way down the mountain of Olives, the Mount of Olives, excuse me, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and, and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that had been seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, this is Jesus answering, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. What would they cry out? They would praise their creator. They exist because of their creator, and they would praise. Do you see the personification? It's kind of interesting that it's, yes, it's personification, and yet, does the Bible not tell us? Did we not sing today that all creation screams the glory of God? In that sense, it absolutely cries out. An inanimate object, like a rock, obeys and cries out the glory of God. Should that not grieve our souls when we choose not to? You know, I, I couldn't help but think also, our own bodies. I'm 57, heading to 58 really fast. And my body does not work the same it did before. And I look at it and I see skin marks and I'm like, oh, I used to see those on my dad and my grandpa. And now they're on my bodies and that kind of stuff. And I think my body is obedient to the curse, not from the curse of the spiritual death. God has saved me out of the spiritual death, but until Christ returns, we will all experience the curse by way of the physical death. My body is obediently following. The dust of mankind, of me, is following and obeying what God has said. I will die one day unless Christ comes again. How far am I from that level of obedience? I question. I sin. I want to be God. My body just wants to obey him. Praise be to God that there's some part of us in that sense. If you've never considered of your body breaking down as obedience, that'll give you something that you want. Okay, let's continue on. Let's take a look at point number two. No dust of mankind can stand in opposition before its creator. In Exodus 9:11, it says, and the magicians, and we already talked about these, are Pharaoh's priests. They are the ones that lead the, the, uh, the false religion. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. So we see that though, much like I had just expressed, though they choose to oppose, their bodies say, no, this is the creator. I can't stand in front of him. I am incapable. It is too painful you cannot go. You cannot be in front of him. You can't hold court. You can't oppose him. Remember, when, when it says you can't stand before him, before Moses, it's actually a military uh, picture there. It's standing face to face in opposition. When you deal with your 
enemy. You stand face to face and you lay down the rules of engagement and you go at it as far as war. Well, God's, these, these gods and his representatives cannot stand before Yahweh. They can't even stand in his presence. They can't stand whatsoever. And we see the power and the, the, the superiority of our God, Yahweh. Let's, let me ask you this question. Sometimes when I, I'm, I'm going through and processing for a sermon, I think, is this true? Is this, a, is this just descriptive or is this prescriptive? Is this something that was part of history and we really don't see it anymore? Or is this prescripted? It, it's, a, it's a principle that goes through all of, all of the Bible. And so as you look at this, I went looking. And you sit there and you come to the New Testament, and I want to find out, will God ultimately, can I rely on a, on a, a particular verse or passage of Scripture to say that he will silence the voices of opposition today? Or was that just something back then? And so we turn to 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9, and, and Paul is teaching Timothy. This is a letter to Timothy to encourage him and make sure that he, gives, he gets proper instruction on how to be this elder that is lifting up and growing up and standing up the church at Ephesus. So Paul is writing to Timothy, and this is the second letter that he wrote to him. So it's called 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9. He's going to tell them, he's going to say, Timothy, I want you to know the people that are, you are going to deal with. I want you to know the people of the last days. The last days aren't far away. Everything after Christ's death are the last days. And then when Christ comes, we have, again, we have the second coming. We are all right now in the last days. Now listen to this at, in that context. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9. But understand this, that in the last days, this very moment, in other words, there will come times of difficulties, for people will be lovers of self. Yep, got that. Lovers of money, got that, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, uh, not, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen and with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying his power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep. And he's going to talk about those particularly disgusting, and that's why I think you have male shepherds in the, uh, in the church as elders. I really do think that, because we can identify these wolves in sheep's clothing. Listen to this. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burden them with sins, and led, and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. And then something interesting happens in verse 8. He's going to do a hyperlink all the way back to our passage. He's going to give names to the priests that can't stand and are, interpret, uh, and are incapacitated. Listen to the names. And by the way, this is a consensus by the vast majority of theologians that I looked up this week. There's no one that I could find that said, oh, no, this, this, these are two other guys. No, they all agree who these two guys are. Let me listen to read to you verse 8. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses... We now know by way of divine inspiration, what were the names of the Egyptian priests that were opposing Moses? Paul gives them to us. Now listen to this. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also, he's talking about, Paul's talking about false teachers in the church. Moses and Jambres, false teachers outside the church. Paul is using that to say, oh, they're going to be just like those, but no, they're going to be in the church. So we have both categories working here. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Are we not seeing those voices in our culture today? 
whether they be the cult, that, that which is outside the church, and we see it all over the place, or we see it which is supposed to be inside the church, and it's no church at all. Christ uses, excuse me, Paul refers to the church as a synagogue of Satan when you have churches that allow false teachers to come in. Why does he call them synagogues of Satan? Because you allow the seed of Satan to come and become the teachers of that false religion. So we continue on. Also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to us to all, as was that of those two men, talking about Jonas and Jambres. So whether the false teachers are outside or whether they're inside the church, they will not get far. God will use your knowledge of the word of God to be able to identify them and incapacitate them, take them out of the ability to speak into your your mind truths that are no truths at all. That's the picture here. Their folly will become plain to those who know God's truth. We are called to stand firm in the faith so we can identify the false teachers outside and inside the church. Let's end with this. No, point number three, no dust of mankind can resist the will of its creator. Verse 12 says this, but Yahweh hardened. It's the, fir- it's the first time we see this word other than way back in chapter four, when God said, Yahweh told him, told Moses, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And to some of us, that seems like, man, that's so wrong. I mean, gosh, the poor guy never had a chance. Where do we see him hardening his heart? Plague number six. Up to this time, Every time in the five previous plagues, Pharaoh hardened his heart. The word was kaved, which means to make heavy, and it means in context, make heavy by way of sin. Add sin upon it. Add the stubbornness that comes from it. Now we see a different word. It's, it's chazach. That's the word that he's using. It's not to make heavy. It's to make firm. So what's going on here? We've got Pharaoh who we assume is simultaneously still making his heart heavy. And now for the first time, we see God making Pharaoh's heart firm or resolute or making it strong against God. Well, we've got a couple of things going on here. First, we've got a a sovereign judicial act against evil. This man, Pharaoh, is evil. We've seen it in the five different plagues. We've seen it by the history of his oppression of the, Egypt, excuse me, of the Israelite people. So this is certainly a sovereign judicial act. Now listen to this. Has God ever done this? Or is God just capriciously doing this and picking on this poor Pharaoh? Let's see it some other times. In Deuteronomy 2.30, this is, the, this, is the, this is later than this time. When the people of God are, are actually now obedient and they're going, this is the, the generation that was disobedient has died out in the wilderness and now the obedient generation, the kids have been raised up and they're headed now back into the land like they were supposed to do before. And they, they're coming around the backside of the promised land and they, they engage the king of Sihon before they get in the land. This is what it says in, in Deuteronomy 2.30. But Sihon, the king of, of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. For Yahweh, your God, this is Moses talking to the people, your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. So we see God doing the same thing later on with this king. This king was already an evil king in the land of the Canaanites. You have to understand the Canaanites were a, a detestable people. 
You think some of the stuff we do today and the wickedness of our sexual perversions that we have, this, this, the, the Canaanites were just as much and in some cases even more foul and depraved than it is today. So God is, has hardened the heart of this king so he'll come to battle so this king will know his judgment temporally here on this earth in the physical realm as well as he will certainly know it at the judgment day of God. So that is what God is doing. He's making a judgment against the king of Sihon. How about this? The Canaanite people, it's not just the king who is, who is perverted in how they are uh, living and, and, and just putting it in God's face. He says this in Joshua eleven twenty, For it was Yahweh's doing to harden their hearts that they would come against Israel in battle, speaking of the Canaanite people, in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as Yahweh commanded Moses. Why? Why would God be so mean? God's not mean. God's bringing about justice. These people have, over generation and generation, lived in opposition to God's word, have become so perverted in their ways, God is bringing justice upon them now. We serve a just God. So we see a a judicial act on Moses, but simultaneously. And sometimes you'll get theologians, they, like, like, like they're going to war against each other on both of these points, and they don't realize that both of them are happening. happening. No, it's this. No, it's that. And you go, well, fellas, it's both. You just need to realize both are happening. Then this is the, the latter part, the, a means of God's glorification. God is going to be glorified by bringing justice in the form of punishment on Pharaoh, who justly deserved it, as a seed of the serpent who was in opposition. God is going to use this public judgment in the form of ten plagues to show the rest of the world, I am the only, the one and only true God. All other gods and, and false religions are just that, false. He does it. He gains glory through demonstrating justice before the world. But we, we... Also, we also receive, let me say it this way. God is also glorified, not just in justice, but in grace and in mercy. When he extends his grace and mercy to us, when he extends it to those who repent of their sins, that trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the people that receive that realize it was not of works, lest any man would boast, I didn't do anything well enough. I wasn't a good enough person. And Jesus said, oh, shucks. I looked down the corridor of time, and they're going to be swell, and I want them on my, my team. That would take some of the credit and give it to us. No. God showed in his good pleasure to show us glory, excuse me, to show us grace or mercy. We responded in that, and according to God in Ephesians, God gets all the glory because it was God's work, not man's. And we go, praise be to God. He gets glory and justice. He gets glory and mercy. And we stand in awe. Now, as it relates to the takeaway, remember the takeaway is be encouraged. False gods, false religions, and false teachers are not able to stand in opposition to the one true God, the creator of all that is created. I find it fascinating that this two-year project of defund the police has resulted in absolute violence, 
murder, and death. You do not need to be convinced that when you oppose God, he will bring decreation into your life. You need only be a historian and look what is being done, what is happening in those cities who have said, we don't want the police there. We don't, in other words, what they're saying is, we do not want that component of the law that brings enforcement of it. God is silencing the voices that cry out in opposition against him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good and gracious God. We thank you that your son, Jesus Christ, did the incredible act of dying for us. Unworthy sinners, made worthy because your son's death allowed us to take on the robes of righteousness, of your son's righteousness. What an incredible exchange. Father, remind us of that. Help us be agents of light. Help us to be patient in the midst of darkness. You will silence the voices. There will be others that will replace those voices, but you will continue to silence them one by one. You will bring forth your light. Your truth will come about as we teach the world the gospel, as we bring them the truth of who your son is and what he has done for us, as we bring light unto the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of darkness will give back those that it holds in captivity. It's in Christ's name we pray.